Hey everyone. If you didn't know, A Child Walks in the Dark is also a collection of poetry, and it is out and about and available from Harbor Editions as of now. So if you're liking the podcast, these fantastic conversations I've gotten to have with these folks, and you like the poems that end each episode, consider picking up a copy of the book. We can, all of us, I think, uh, use as much poetry in our lives as possible. Thank you. Walks in the Dark, a podcast hosted by award-winning poet and author Darren C. Demery. Each week, Darren and a series of other parents and creative careers join up to discuss a different theme or challenge to raising children. Their joy, their narrative and languages, their lineage and authorship, their small towns and cities and hopes, their community and efforts to save and be saved. Each episode explores the role of creative person as a parent as they attempt to navigate the world their young people are growing into. This week's episode, it's it's One Defeat at a Time, and our guest is Joan Kwan Glass. Joan Kwan Glass is the author of Night Swim, winner of the 2021 Diode Editions Book Contest, and serves as editor-in-chief of Harbor Review. Her micro-chat book, Bloodline, won the 2021 Washburn Prize, and her poetry chat book, How to Make Pancakes for a Dead Body, Harbor Editions 2022, won the 2021 Marginalia Contest. She serves as Poet Laureate 2021 to 2024 for the city of Milford, Connecticut, and as Poetry Co-Editor for West Trestle Review. Now, Darren and Joan Kwan Glass. Uh, and as promised today, our guest is Joan Kwan Glass, and uh, she is a, a poet, a teacher, a mother, uh, and today's topic, uh, the theme is it's one defeat at a time, uh, as in how do we teach our children about the reality of the world that has so many different pressures and contexts and so much of it that feels um, sometimes rigged, sometimes a little evil, sometimes um, uh, bent on oppression in any sort of number of ways. Uh, so I think your kids are uh, older than mine, for the most part. How, how have you sort of taught them about this? How have you led them to um, become from little people to big people in this world? And, and how have you approached this? Um, uh, wow. Well, let me just start by saying I was really drawn to just the title of the poem, it's one defeat at a time because I, you know, I'm not sure I've ever seen a title that encapsulates how you feel as a parent, you know, like most regularly, at least, well, I should speak for myself. Um, it often feels like a losing battle. Um, there, there, I have a 17 year old, a 15 year old and a 10 year old. So I've gone through, you know, I'm going through the teenage years now and I'm about to, you know, in a year I'll have a mid another middle schooler. And I just know from experience now that 
the forces that be, whether they be social media or, um, you know, the pressures that kids experience out in the world, the confusion, the mental health concerns, sexuality, all of that stuff, um, is their, that's, it's their struggle. I think like what I've come to understand is that depending on which child I'm talking about, me trying to teach them things <laughs> or um, hope that they develop the perspective that I think is the right perspective has very much backfired on me. And I'll, um, in some cases it hasn't. And I'll give you, before we talk about defeats, maybe one victory that I feel like I've had, sure. which is, um, or maybe two. Um, the first one is around religion. I, I grew up in an evangelical household um, that was very oppressive. The church that I attended um, had a lot of traumatic experiences in that church. And a lot of people have really positive experiences with religion. And I think sometimes I come off as being critical of religion, but it's really just my experience is what I realize now. Um, when my children were really young, I worked very, very hard to keep them from organized religion, which had, it was very difficult at times because my mother is a very, very, still a very religious person. Um, and that's the one thing I feel like I've succeeded at because I always, and it was, I could talk probably for hours about the individual battles that I fought there, but I wanted them to have more fully developed brains before they were exposed to um, ideas that might, that where they might make decisions about what they believed out of fear. Um, I wanted them to, you know, have exposure to many different religions, many different perspectives and lifestyles so that when they grow up, they can make their own choices about things. So that's what I feel like has been one um, thing I've done successfully. And I think the other is around identity. You know, that um, I've always been very verbal about, you know, different sexualities being not just acceptable, but that they should be celebrated. Um, and it's one thing that uh, I feel like kids still, and it's just so disappointing, but they still in schools um, hear being gay as an insult. You know, it's like one, I don't know what it's going to take for that to change, but it continues to happen. And so, you know, we're around my friends who are in different sexualities and different identities. And I make sure that I use celebratory language as well and that they meet different types of people. And, and I feel like in that way, I've had success too. Well, you know, and I think for me, the, the, the two things you just brought up, one of them takes a leap. Anytime someone is talking about belief, um, talking about religion and, and trying to uh, not master, but understand some of the some of the things, the machinations of this world, and trying to situate themselves within it. You know, that's always a leap. And um, you know, I was brought up in uh, Presbyterian Church. 
that I ended up having uh, a bad reaction to when they told me that my uh, uh, Indian best friend would need to be converted, would need to be discussed, would need to be talked to if I was mm -hmm. going to be doing my job as a Christian. And I had a very uh, pronounced reaction to that. Um, and my own children have um, uh, enjoyed church in a, in a much different way than I have. Um, I'm sort of the um, let's wait and think about it voice in, in, in my family. Um, not because I don't see uh, the goals and the hopes of most major religions to be to be beautiful things. It's normally the context and delivery and ulterior motives that that you know always get real loud and flashy to me, mm. uh, proselytizing and missionary work and and things that I think have done a great amount of harm, uh, both locally and worldwide. Um, but they've, they've found their way, uh, maybe not with understanding, but in the context of that community. Um, and so I've, I myself have been wary of trying to give them too much too soon. Um, now if I'm asked the question, I'm going to always answer honestly, because, when their curiosity gets the best of them, especially in these bigger topics, it, it signals to me that they're ready to discuss them more. Um, and then I try to be as honest as I can about why I'm not going to church with them. Um, and then part of this is selfish parenting stuff. When they go to church, my mom will pick them up and take them to church. And that's our one break sometimes for the Got whole it. to to not, to not be parenting, you know, hundred percent of the time. Um, and so I think their expectation is that this is our break. And when they ask bigger questions about it, um, like there's been some chances for my oldest daughter to do some, I think some mission work and things like that. And it's just not something I'm comfortable with mm -hmm. them doing. Um, in terms of sexuality and the language that comes with it, especially at my library, there's a lot of, well, that's gay. Right. Um, right. Uh, even amongst uh, some uh, sort of uh, people exploring their young sexualities uh, and discussing what they might be and who they might be becoming, um, that still gets bandied about in a way that surprises me a great deal for younger people to use it that way, um, for it still to become pointed. And it's um, mine are young enough, mine are, mine are 12 nine and, and four. And so some of those conversations have come home, but not many of them. Uh, and it's mostly, you know, the, the kids are that your kids age at the library that I'm, I'm, I'm still really surprised. I am mm -hmm. that, especially when we think generationally that this might be the, you know, the one coming up that is, that is fine. That is okay. And accepting much more so than our generation was. Um, but maybe that's just hoping. <laughs> maybe we're maybe we're hoping for that. I think it is it is possible to it is possible to combat all of that. You know, it really is. Um, and with with my younger son, we just had this. I just started saying this thing every time he said you know, well, that's gay. Cause he was doing that for a little while. That's gay. Or someone said, this is gay. I always go yay for gay. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? And now he's started saying it. Like mm-hmm. he started saying that. So sometimes with the younger kids, like just keeping it really simple, not over explaining something because they just kind of like tune out or look at you like, what are you talking about? Um, just keeping it simple has worked, you know, but oh, and that's um, catchy and positive. Yay for gay. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And as far as the, you know, back to the religion for, I actually have, I have poems about this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I wrote a poem called saved, which is in rough cut press a couple of years ago, which was about, um, being one, my best friend when I was like 10 years old, nine and 10 years old, my next door neighbor, she was Jewish and, you know, our church pressured me to try to convert her to Christianity. I mean, they, I had the youth pastor had me over to his house to explain how to do it, gave me pamphlets and sent me off. And, and I did what I thought I was supposed to do. And the reaction from her mother was so, was so intense. I mean, she wrote my mother a seven page letter explaining how incredibly offensive it was. And I would not be allowed to play with her daughter. If I didn't, you know, if it were me, I'm not sure I would have even given the child, the family, another chance, you know, but she was very kind and she did. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's really hard. It's, you know, back to, I'm just looking at the title and looking at your poem again. And it's, you know, the entire collection, Darren was really affected me, not just because the poems are brilliant, but because you, you really tackle not, I don't know if tackle is the right word. You, you share your experiences with parenting and just with, um, you know, being around your children and like watching them grow in a way that it's very emotional, but there's also like a detachment almost in some of the poems, like, a, um, and I'm not sure if that's the right word either, but it, for me, it works really well because I feel like when you're writing, uh, there was an AWP panel um, called No One Cares About Your Kid. Were you on that? No, you weren't on that. I did the sobriety narrative. Okay. So I just loved that title because I think parenting is one of those things where like, if you're a poet and a parent, you're very interested in reading other people's poems about parenting. But if you're not a parent, you know, you start reading a poem about parenting. A lot of people, I just think stop reading because it's not something that they can identify with. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I love the way that first of all, your poems aren't held to grammar. You know, I love that there are no commas and there are no capital letters and there are, you know, um, there's no punctuation because you can build new poems out of the, the, you know, the lack of structure, the structure or the lack of structure, whatever you want to call it. And I just loved how you did that. Um, And in terms of like feeling defeated, Mm. you know, that it's one defeat at a time. I think what I've, as somebody in recovery, um, like step work has helped me a lot with learning to let go of things in parenting, because it's like, I've learned to let go of things at work. 
Um, I've gotten better at letting go of things with my mother, which was very difficult. Um, but an area that I just, I just want to hold on for dear life is in parenting and with my children. And I've had some experiences lately that give, give me evidence that when I do let go, and that's not to say like, you don't let go in terms of not doing work on your child's behalf or not make, you know, you still make sure that they have what they need and you do the best that you can. But for me, once I know I've done the best that I can, I want to make sure I'm not trying to control an outcome. Yeah. Um, and I have some evidence lately that when I do that, things fall into place. <laughs> but when I can't bring myself to do that, things just get exponentially worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and well, I, I can't explain that, why yeah. that is, but it's just something I've experienced. Well, we get we get our face pressed to these moments that we've heard about and talked about and we are having that big discussion or trying to make help the kids make a big decision. And so the pressure of that makes us want to be more and more involved when in reality, they've had 17 years, 12 years, 10 years of discussions with us that have sort of all layered into how they want to make decisions and they've interpreted things and, and how they have. And, and sometimes they've listened to us really well, sometimes almost too well. Um, but the, the purpose and the orientation of the poems, and I've been thinking about it as, as the months have sort of gone past with this book, is it is honestly like I, each poem begins with a balloon between me and one of my children or two of my children, and the language is close and loving, and then the balloon starts to float away, and I'm using language you would use to talk to adults, to try to explain things, to stammer a little mm -hmm. bit, to repeat phrases, and it ends up floating just far enough. And then at the very end, they yank the tether and they bring the balloon back to their face where it's tender again. Mm. And I think what I've gotten better at, maybe not necessarily as a poet, but as a parent, is that I'm going to let them control that that final move. Um, because mm -hmm. what we're trying to do over and over again is not give them the answers to these questions. And, I, and I've said this before on this podcast, we're, we're trying to reframe what the question is. We're right. trying to give them a way that they've been prepared to answer and answer it the best they can. Um, and I imagine the experiences you've had, especially with the 17 year old is what's, is what's on the horizon for me, which is terrifying because the questions have such weight as they mm -hmm. get into starting to put together what they believe to be the final pieces of their development, their personality, sexuality, um, and those leaps of faith that they now feel comfortable making um, and are emboldened because they are becoming adults. Um, and I don't think I started making any good decisions till I was like 32, but that's, <laughs> that's also because I was drunk for a while. Um, you know, yeah, same. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's super hard, but to, to, to try to orient yourself and keep, keep your face in front of theirs, not above theirs, keep what you talk about in a way that they lead the discussion and you try to frame it in a way just to help them understand 
not what they're going to do or what they're going to say, but what the implications could be. And that, you know, that's, that's super hard to not, I don't know. I feel like I can come up with lots of words and phrases and then I can be made speechless by my children at any given moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think you were talking about questions, you know, and framing conversations and, you know, letting our children come up with the answers. And it's, it's very much like teaching, you know, in a way like that part of it is very much like teaching in that when I'm in the classroom, there are always things that come up that I have very strong opinions about. Um, And I, not only can I not share those opinions, I would not be doing my job if I shared those opinions with my students, but I have to move the dialogue in a way so that they are actually the ones asking the questions. You know, and I, it's harder to apply that in parenting. Like I, I think one of my goals right now is to move away from even framing what the conversation is going to be and instead letting my children ask the questions. Um, and then once they've asked the questions, being a participant in that dialogue with them. Now that doesn't work as well when with a 10 year old. Um, who is, you know, more interested in sneaking, watching a YouTube video than asking questions about a lot most days. Um, But with my teenagers, I think it's very relevant and a very powerful thing to wait, (laughs) you know, sometimes to just wait and to be patient to find out what questions it is that they're going to be asking for their own lives um, of the world. I haven't had an experience where my, my daughter um, in, in some ways, personality wise, we are the same person. And so we butt heads a lot, but she has absolutely no interest in poetry. <laughs> um, she's not interested in art. She, she loves Marvel movies. And that is like her passion. And um, I don't get it, you know, like I don't get it at all. But instead of disregarding it, if I can ask her, you know, like what it is about the, and sometimes she can tell me and sometimes she can't. And other times she's like, why are you asking me that? I just like it, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's kind of poetic too, like just to, uh, participate in life in a way where the, the, what you want is to be happy and, you know, to enjoy, to enjoy life without always having to wonder why, um, or have some deep reason for everything. I think as a poet, I'm always looking for depth mm-hmm. and kids don't necessarily do that. Like they're, they don't always need depth, you know? I think the world is going to provide them with plenty of that. Well, and they're, you know, they're, they're developing and growing both emotionally and physically, uh, academically, and they don't have to go searching, you know, everything's exploration for them. Mm -hmm. Right. So you and I are old enough. We think we have a few things figured out. Yeah. And then we sort of plunge deeper into the things that catch us or we explore in ourselves or, 
you know, we go looking for it because that's sort of part of our instinct as adults and as artists and our kids are like, you know, this is hard enough. <laughs> like, yeah, if I'm going to take two hours to watch something, I'm, I'm not looking to, to go deeper into myself. Um, right. And, and even with tragic events, I mean, in, you know, there's been a lot of, there was a lot of tragedy all at once in my family and, um, you know, my kids handled it in completely opposite ways, but neither of those ways was wrong. You know, um, one of my children on finding out that his, his nephew had taken his life immediately wanted to go to the beach and build a memorial for him, like out of sticks and rocks and um, has done some work around mental health, um, you know, suicide prevention kinds of stuff. And my other child, it took years for her to process what had happened or to even want to know anything about it. Um, I think it was a protection, you know, she needed to protect herself from what had happened until she was ready to process it. And that's just started to happen. Um, and it, you know, it happened five years ago. Mm-hmm. So I just think, I guess what I've learned a lot about, and I wish I had understood this earlier in my parenting, but what I've learned is that each one of my kids has their own higher power. And like, it's not me. Mm -hmm. It is not me. Um, And they're going to have their own journeys and their own processes. And I really don't have any idea what's in store for them. You know, I really don't. And I never felt like I could control um, the outcomes, but I've just been so surprised along the way, you know, about the questions they ask or didn't ask or what they became interested in or how they would respond to certain situations. And I wish that I could be more monk-like in my parenting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and that was, you know, on, on the on the last episode when I was talking to Ira Sukrungrung about his, he's he's got a, a young son who's five and about sort of the pressures of violence and racism in the world and how they still present themselves to a five-year-old and having to do shoe, uh, school shooting drills um, and having, uh, you know, some, some people in Ohio maybe say some not so great things. Mm-hmm. Um, your children are old enough that the world has sort of widened for them um, that you'd expect them to sort of witness a lot of the barrage, especially in the last five, 10 years, but it's also visited you in, in your home in a way that that's always going to be the, the most difficult thing for um, the actual loss of another person that they knew that they loved um, sets right. up the, the parameters um, of actual grief before they maybe even know what that is. Uh, one thing I've really come to appreciate, not just about my own kids, but about a lot of kids. And, you know, I teach sixth grade. So this is like a daily occurrence mm-hmm. where the kid, kids are able to find humor in things where adults aren't, you know, and sometimes it almost feels inappropriate. Like I want to scold 
a child for like, how dare you laugh at that? But what I've come to realize is it's really just their coping mechanism. Like kids use humor to reject or reject and navigate, I guess, like a world where there's way too much that they're exposed to. Um, and it's, and I kind of like no longer am faulting them for that. You know, my, my son, when, um, like this past year, I've had three books get accept, accepted for publication. And he was talking to me, I'm careful about what I share with my kids in terms of actual, my actual writing, because it, this past year, it's just been all um, really intense. But you know, I did talk to my 17 year old son about it and he has since nicknamed me the sadness. <laughs> you wow. know, he's like, you are no longer mom. You are the sadness. So I'll text him about something and he'll be like, hello, sadness. Hmm. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you just can't. And it's like, it makes yeah. me smile. You know, we take ourselves really seriously. Yeah as adults. And I I think I'm an even more serious adult than a lot of adults. And so I am grateful to be around kids on a daily basis, my kids, other people's kids, Mm -hmm. you know, for that reason. Well, and that's, you know, that part of the premise of this is even, even in the hardest times, children are able to find just radical hope. Sort of it's, they've got, they've got it on tap somehow. And my own apprehension and, you know, part of the motivation behind that it's one defeat at a time is part of its parenting is one defeat at a time. And part of it is teaching your children how hard everything is seemingly all Mm -hmm. the time and how you really sort of want to explain so that they're prepared, but you don't want to, you don't want to you don't want parenting to be a cudgel. You don't want it to be something where you remove that dramatic hope. Um, And even my 12 year old who is just bound and determined to save the planet and bound and determined to support her friends and join every group that it can expand how she cares for other people. She does this constantly and Mm -hmm. I'm tired. (laughs) I'm just like, I, you know, we've, we've, we've done these wars to try to protect these people we love that are around us to try to make sure that their voices are heard and they're given as wide a path as possible to find actual joy as adult human beings. And it just feels like you get beaten down. Um, And I don't want to, I don't want to share that feeling. I don't want to, I don't want that to be one of the things I give them, but it's hard. It's hard to not be like, well, okay, be careful. I think we just have to be human. I mean, the one thing I try to do no matter what is that um, no matter how I'm feeling or struggling with something, or even on those days when I'm like, you know what, I give up, like I give up today, but tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to try again. And I think it's been, I know it has been really important for my kids to see that even in grief. You know, um, I have this memory of my nine-year-old. So my nine-year-old was, or my 10-year-old, he just turned 10, um, was four or five when his nephew died. And I have this distinct memory of 
you know, I just was crying all the time and he was really little and I was like in bed crying and he, he opened the, like the door just swung open in his chubby little face. And he goes, Oh, you're crying again. And he threw his stuffed animal at me and then just left. And I was like, and I actually started laughing, like as I was crying, which is the best it's just the best feeling to, you know, to like know that as a human being, we can experience grief, we can experience despair and that our kids can see us experience those things because you know what, they're going to experience them too. Mm. Um, and that the, what they need to see is that the next day we still get up and we still go through the process of, of living and that we make room for joy, you know, even as we're grieving. And that was very, very difficult for me. And it's still difficult. It almost feels like a betrayal sometimes of, you know, the people that I've lost, like, how dare I be joyful in spite of the fact that you aren't here, Mm. but children insist on it. (laughs) They do. And And it's yeah, a gift. If, if if they can meet you in that place where they ask, how did you? Or mm. why did you? And you can give them the honest explanation. You know, that's that's such a generative thing for a young person to hear. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen my parent be sad or angry. And you know what? They were they were still my parent the next day. You know, right. they didn't they didn't run from their life, they didn't run from me. They didn't make things seem impossible and making things seem possible seems like the biggest part of parenting, Um, you know, and trying to hit that red panic button as, as few times as possible and, and allow them to to sort of run into walls as, you know, as my nine-year-old just does um, (laughs) literally run into walls. Sometimes he's got a friend coming over to play today. The walls, I'm hoping they hold. Oh, Um, yes. Well, I have this thing that I say, which is when when I'm starting to see my children become chaotic, I just say, we're not going to the ER today. Yeah. (laughs) That's my way of manifesting. I am manifesting a Mm -hmm. lack of injury by making that statement. ER is going to be eight hours. We don't want. (laughs) Don't Don't have that kind of time. Absolutely not. Uh, well, Joan, I, I very much appreciate you exploring this with me a little bit today. And um, how how can people best get a hold of the new book? Um, you can purchase a copy of Night Swim at Diode Editions. It's www.diode. That's D-I-O-D-E editions.com. Um, also my, e- if you want a signed copy, you could email me at Joan P glass at gmail.com. That's awesome. Well, Patty Payne and everyone at Dio does, they, they do great work. Oh my uh, God. They're amazing. And it's, I'm, it's I'm, been a dream. I'm glad you're, uh, you're the newest one for them. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Darren, for this invitation. Uh, it's absolutely. been It's been like, it's been amazing to read your book and then participate in this conversation. So thank you.
Uh, it's always good to see you. And, and before we go, I wanted to thank Emily Caldwell for recording the introduction and for the band Pagination for recording the intro and outro music. Uh, we've got a bunch more of these set up for the spring. Joan, thanks for being the one to bring us back. Thank you, Darren. It's one defeat at a time. I told my daughter it's one defeat at a time, this holy darkness, this January belief system of yours. But if you want most of all to believe in one death, I find no fault in that, in the narrowing of your eyes, in an attempt to blur the world into order or beauty. But there have been billions of deaths already, most of them lives preempted in some way. So maybe as you grow older, you might consider joining me in remembering that it takes billions of deaths to create a god, and only one life really lived and remembered to cement the place of all humanity.